Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. This is Allison R. Brown, and I am your host. Today on Schoolhouse, we are talking with a dear friend of mine, Damon Hewitt, about his work over the years as a civil rights attorney and leader in the field of school discipline reform and equity in education. Damon is a senior advisor at the Open Society Foundations and director of the Executives Alliance for Boys and Men of Color. Prior to that, Damon was an attorney with the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, where he litigated school desegregation cases and founded and led LDF's Dismantling the School-to-Prison Pipeline Initiative. He's a native of New Orleans, Louisiana, and helped to coordinate post-Hurricane Katrina litigation and advocacy on issues including education, housing, and voting. He is co-author of the School-to-Prison Pipeline, Structuring Legal Reform. He's also really just a cool person and a lot of fun to talk to. So I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Thanks for being here on Schoolhouse, Damon. Thanks for having me, Allison, and I feel the same way about you. Uh, (laughs) Glad to be here. I want to jump right in and talk about NAACP, Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Mm -hmm. the former stomping ground of Thurgood Marshall Mm -hmm. and Charles Hamilton Houston, who very famously admonished his students at Howard University School of Law to do right by Mm -hmm. Black people. And I'm going to quote him. He said, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. He said, a social engineer is a highly skilled, perceptive, sensitive lawyer who understands the Constitution of the United States and knows how to explore its uses in the solving of problems of local communities and in bettering conditions of the underprivileged citizens. I think you are of that ilk, Damon Hewitt. So how seriously do you take that charge from Charles Houston? You know, that's one of my favorite quotes. And it's, uh, you know, with some uh, some differences, it's just as relevant today as it was when he mm-hmm. uttered those words, especially as a young lawyer at the Legal Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. I, and I believe my colleagues, took it very seriously. Mm-hmm. It was the aim, the goal for every day mm-hmm. to be able to live up to that standard. It was the cloak in which we draped ourselves. Mm-hmm. When we went to battle uh, in court or to work with folks in communities, it was the pedestal that people in communities placed us on mm-hmm. uh, yes. because we certainly were in a place of privilege, sometimes uncomfortably so, and learning just even how to navigate that, mm. as Lina Gwinnett and others you know, have, have written and instructed over the years about the role of a lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, to be a people's lawyer mm-hmm. uh, in the midst of a civil rights struggle, to not usurp the voice of the voiceless um, mm-hmm. and substitute your own judgment at every turn. That took a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I took it very seriously every day. Mm-hmm. And how did you find your way into the law? What was your, your path <laughs> to lawyering? My path, interestingly, was American History AP. Really? In high it, school? In high school. It's where I first started to think and even do some of my first writing mm-hmm. about racism and how it plays out and human interaction in this country, mm-hmm. everyday interaction. And I actually decided I wanted to be a high school history teacher. Really? Exactly. Who was your teacher? Who was that uh, teacher? Leo Leventhal. I learned later he was uh, a big uh, union guy, uh-huh. uh, teacher's union guy uh, in New Orleans. When the teachers went on strike, he was out there out front. Mm-hmm. And uh, just all around good person and good mentor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, white Jewish guy in New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, giving me license to write about exploitation of black athletes What? Uh, in an American history AP class. <laughs> mm-hmm. I appreciate it. And then also not only that, but also mm-hmm. deconstructing kind of, you know, early 20th century populism mm-hmm. uh, and understanding uh, what most wouldn't really acknowledge in terms of kind of the racial uh, racist implications of some of that brand of populism. 
and who was included and who was left mm-hmm. out. So he was he was very instructive, but he didn't beat us over the head with it. Mm-hmm. What he really did was what other teachers did not do. He opened our eyes to some information and he let us find our own path mm-hmm. in ways that often will be shut down, frankly, implicitly or explicitly yes. by other teachers. And so that's what inspired me to say, I want to be a history teacher. Yeah. Plus, you know, a lot of educators in my family, my mom, mm-hmm. uh, two aunts, uh, what have you. So I got to uh, college at Louisiana State University, LSU, mm-hmm. and my first uh, history class was Louisiana history, mm. and it was all about politics. Really? And, so I did and not, not about not exactly not race about, yeah. and the, well, the caste well, it, system, it, it, et it was, it was about those things, okay. right? Although those things were glossed over. You had to dig through the materials to find them. Right. Uh, so, for example, the uh, there have been two Governor Fosters in Louisiana history. The first Governor Foster, who I believe was the great-grandfather of the second, mm-hmm. who was... Uh, governor when we were uh, in our early adulthood, he had a quote, and I'll paraphrase, something to the effect of during his second inaugural, he said, um, something must be done to preserve the place of the rich man in his place and the poor man in, in his place. What? Right. And so uh-huh. just, just, just the blatantness yeah. of that kind of a comment, not explicitly mentioning colored people, Negroes, African-Americans, but certainly that's who he was, part of who he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so... At any rate, uh, and just the notion that the populism that rose up to challenge that notion didn't include people who were being oppressed. Not mm-hmm. everybody was being oppressed. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, I just really got into the whole uh, racial justice, cultural aspect of <laughs> of Louisiana history. And I found mm-hmm. my way into political science mm-hmm. and what most policy majors do to go to law school. <laughs> now, the truth is, I, I had a couple of formative experiences. One was uh, as a, uh, a participant in a program called the Nubian Predoctoral Academy. Nubian Predoctoral yes. Academy. Yes. It was a, uh, a program that was funded in part by a settlement uh, that resulted from a higher ed de- uh, school desegregation case mm-hmm. in which Southern University, the largest HBCU system in the country, yeah. and other HBCUs uh, that were state-funded were systemically underfunded and essentially neutered uh, by the state, by the powers that be. And mm-hmm. so part of the settlement was to promote more... Uh, uh, doctoral level programs uh, and create a pipeline mm-hmm. for African-American students. Mm. So the Nubian Pre-Doctoral Academy, <laughs> which was not named by the system, <laughs> it was named by Kofi Lomate, who was a, a, a noted educator, mm-hmm. uh, administrator, and, uh, and mentor who was at LSU at the time. Uh, he created this academy. Mm-hmm. And so the experience of understanding what doctoral level education was about mm-hmm. was informative. And then the following, uh, that was a summer, and the following semester, I was a teaching assistant for him. Oh, wow. uh, for a class that was focused on deconstructing curriculum, mm-hmm. uh, even elementary school curriculum about what they teach you in school about Christopher Columbus yeah. Uh, yeah. and the pilgrims, yeah. and, right? And uh, what does religious liberty mean for black folks? Wow. And, and, and what does uh, and discovery mean? Propagandize in some What does the yeah. doctrine of discovery mean mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. for people of color, for native peoples, yeah. right? And eminent uh, domain, uh, sorry, manifest destiny. Yeah. So at any rate, um, it, it means death and destruction. Exactly, often. means death and destruction yeah. often. Yeah. And so those were instructive experiences. And so I thought, yes, when I'm a teacher, this is what I want mm. to teach about. And then at some point, Allison, I realized, you know, my academic background was in political science. Mm-hmm. My extracurricular, essentially, background was in education. Yeah. So I had the GRE application in one hand and mm-hmm. the LSAT in the other. And <laughs> so it was I, either that, that doctorate or the Juris or, Doctorate. Or the Juris Doctorate, right. exactly. And I think my experiences uh, both informed me and, frankly, sometimes confused me about mm-hmm. what path I should take. Mm-hmm. And I figured the law path would give me perhaps the better platform, allow me to be the most nimble, mm-hmm. and also not tie me up in grad school for six years. <laughs> uh, but um, 
There is debt. Although oh. it does make you incur more debt, however. Yes. Uh, Somehow that happens. That's right. That's right. But anyway, anyway, it's a, a long story, but it was those experiences that brought me uh, to legal education, to the law, both from a certain kind of perspective about mm-hmm. what I wanted to do with the law. Essentially, I mean, mm-hmm. you're helping me realize this now in this conversation. Mm-hmm. I wanted to teach through the law. Wow. And you have know, you done that? Have you been able to do that? I have, uh, literally and figuratively. I mean, literally, I was an adjunct professor, a lecturer in law, both at Brooklyn Law School and at Penn, my mm-hmm. uh, law school alma mater, mm-hmm. uh, for about a year and a half. I couldn't continue it because of travel and what have you. Mm-hmm. And I think in other ways, through some writing, I haven't done a whole lot of writing, but some writing, mm-hmm. but also through the public education function of the litigations that mm-hmm. were involved in the cases. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we which knew... Is, which is... I mean, that's the legacy of, of LDF. I think so. That's the yeah. legacy of LDF of Charles Hamilton Houston. It's about telling the story, yeah. right? So you can tell the story by, as the NAACP proper did uh, in years past, hang the sign in New York, a, a, a man was lynched today, mm-hmm. right? That's telling mm-hmm. the story. Right. You can also tell a story through the experience of individual clients or a class of clients. Mm-hmm. And you can actually, as John Powell would say, broaden the circle of human concern mm-hmm. uh, about what is happening to this group of people. But also uh, flip the script, so to speak, on uh, trying to debunk some of the myths and challenge notions of uh, who the people are, yeah. uh, who we are, essentially, and what we're about and what we deserve mm. and, and what justice means for us. So speaking of that, mm-hmm. speaking of challenging these myths mm-hmm. that are out there, especially about communities of color and young people of color, mm-hmm. you wrote a really beautiful op-ed in the New York mm-hmm. Times, and it's called The Truth About New York City's Elite High Schools. And it's about those admission schools in New York City. And I just want to read an excerpt from your op-ed where you say this system, while it might seem meritocratic, in fact, leads to a shocking inequity. Even though black and Latino students make up nearly 70 percent of public high school students in the city, they routinely represent only 10 percent of those offered admission to the specialized high schools. This year, the city offered admission to only 524 black and Latino students. The numbers are even lower at some of the most desired schools, such as Thyvesence, which has space for nearly 1,000 freshmen and offered admission to only 13 Black students. So tell this story about Mm. the admissions high schools in New York City. And I'll just say, it's not unique to New York City. There's some components that may be unique, but the phenomenon, you're right, is not unique. So Mm -hmm. in pretty much every city, uh, in America, there's some elite uh, public high school. I went to one of those schools and mm-hmm. uh, high schools in New Orleans, uh, Benjamin Franklin High School. It was created during the, the space race with the Russians, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the Sputnik uh, craze. And the idea was that we need more elite schools for <laughs> to uh, cultivate the minds, to, to cultivate the minds of, of the so scientists. we can win. So we can win. That's right. Whatever winning means, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it was one of those schools. And um, for whatever reason, whether it be space race, whether it be a belief in social stratification, mm-hmm. whatever it whatever it be, uh, what happened to be in a city, pretty much every major city in America uh, and every state has some type of schools of this of this sort, one or more. Mm-hmm. And in New York, uh, there's a set of them. And the most popular ones are, as you mentioned, Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, and Brooklyn Tech. Mm-hmm. There's five others that are similarly situated. And then a, another concentric circle band of of other schools, mm-hmm. some of which are private, some of which are public, mm-hmm. uh, that also view themselves as as elite. Mm-hmm. And just like institutions of higher education, yeah. some of which you and I attended, yes, they revel mm-hmm. in the institutions that is revel in their elite status. Mm-hmm. It is something to protect. It is almost a property interest. Yes. And our, our friend and and uh, 
Halleck Ian Haney Lopez and others have mm-hmm. written about whiteness as property. And yeah. it's almost as if connection to the institution creates a proximity to that whiteness yeah. and somehow hmm. a privileged status of some sort. And so that has interesting impacts. So one is that the people who lead the institutions yeah. have every incentive and reason to preserve the status quo. Mm-hmm. Those who attend the institutions want to believe in their own merit and specialness, status. Yeah. And those specialness and those <laughs> who are alumni of the institutions mm-hmm. for sure mm-hmm. uh, have that interest. Yes. And so one of the things that I found that I will maybe talk more about later is that African American alumni in particular of yeah. these schools in New mm-hmm. York are some of the most rabid defenders mm. of the current policy. It's almost as if they want to uh, once they've squeaked through the doors of privilege, slam that door behind them mm. to preserve their own sense of self-worth. Wow. It's a pity to see. It's tragic, yeah. frankly. The interesting thing about the schools in New York City that you don't see elsewhere is that in New York City, eight of the schools, including the three that I mentioned by name mm-hmm. earlier, have a single criterion, a sole criterion that determines admissions. It is an admissions test. Mm-hmm. And so you would think, well, you pass the test and you get in, you fail the test, you don't get in. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it works. First thing is there's no way to pass or fail the test mm-hmm. because there is no designated passing or failing score. Mm-hmm. The way it works is that whoever happens to score the highest on the test in a given year gets their choice of which schools they want to attend. Right. So the truth is a score that gets you in this year might not get you in next year. Right. And the score that got you... Because it starts with that person that scores the highest and then it goes Exactly. It's a rank, rank order. Right. The second strange thing is that when we asked the New York City Department of Education, when my colleagues and I filed a complaint Mm -hmm. challenging this process a few years ago, we asked for information from the Department of Education regarding any evidence that the test actually assesses what is required to succeed in the schools. Mm -hmm. And they basically told us we have no such evidence. Mm. In fact, one psychometrician, test, fancy name for testing experts, as you know, uh, said to us, it seems that the test essentially uh, determines who does well in the test. Yeah. And, and so, that is all. That is the only... And, and, and so it's the, it's the arbitrariness, yeah. right, that is an oddity. In fact, there's similarly arbitrary processes for admission to schools all across the country. Mm-hmm. When I uh, took the test for admission to Ben Franklin High School, uh, one component was an IQ test. Mm. Which, you know, to you, get into high school. That's right. <laughs> Which is mandated. You have to go to high school. You have to go to high school. Right. Yeah. Right. right. So for an IQ test for this particular high wow. school. And so there's, there's some kind of like strange permutation in, in, in most cities. And so these aren't things that one would usually connect to merit. Yeah. Right. At least not a, a broad, fulsome notion of yeah. merit. Yeah. So when you combine the arbitrariness with the result, right, the result being that so many black and brown students don't get in. Yeah. At one point white students were the predominant population in the New York City elite high schools. Now it's white and Asian students, Mm. right? And so Mm -hmm. that complicates the analysis for some because they say, well, this is an anti-Asian push, which is far from the truth. In fact, there were Asian complainants who joined us in challenging this policy Mm -hmm. and national Asian American organizations who took a lot of heat for supporting Mm -hmm. uh, what we did. But going back to what you said about challenging these myths and these notions, the baseline thing for me is that you can't tell us that in a city of 8 million people, right. of 1.1 million students, yes. of hundreds of thousands of eligible students uh, entering high school, rising ninth graders, that, that you can only find 13. Students, right? right? It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, essentially, what you're saying is either you guys are stupid or you're stupider or not as smart as everyone else. Yes. And so that is... Because even the solution... So there was mm-hmm. some response by the de Blasio administration. Right 
to this push around the admission high schools. But even the solutions, as you lay out so wonderfully in your op-ed, even the solutions were insulting and adopted this narrative of black and brown children is less than. That's right. The solutions were about test prep Mm -hmm. or about making exceptions to allow those who almost got in to to, to squeeze in kind Mm -hmm. of a a retrograde 70s version of a kind of a so-called affirmative action type of approach. And mm-hmm. affirmative action with the lowercase a and the lower yes. in, in, in both in both realms. Because yeah. I do support affirmative action uh, when, the, the when, when, when done well, with the capital yeah. A. <laughs> right? And I think that even with the best of intentions mm-hmm. across the political spectrum, people default to a narrow notion of merit. And mm-hmm. frankly, is built upon an assumption of black and Latino inferiority. Yeah. Uh, that it cannot be that there are many, many more black and brown students who could succeed in these schools. Yes. That we have to find, quote unquote. If we were to get rid of this one test that's right. that is the, the indicator and look at their overall middle middle school experience and their leadership in community, et cetera, that's right. would be well qualified to attend these schools. Or if we would, even if you keep the flawed test, which doesn't seem to measure much, mm-hmm. although there have been some attempts by the current administration to produce evidence uh, of test validation mm-hmm. uh, that I haven't, they haven't been made fully public, but there certainly been some attempts. Mm-hmm. But even if you keep the test, which I do still believe is flawed or limited, at least look at grades. Yeah. I mean, under this policy, if a student has straight A's mm-hmm. from elementary school through high school, and it doesn't has matter. a bad day on this test, it has a bad day on the test. They're not going to get in. And the other thing too, I should say, is that the test isn't demonstrated to be aligned to the curriculum that's taught. Mm. In the middle schools. Do you know where the, the test actually came from? From a testing company. Mm. If I recall correctly, the company is Pearson. Mm-hmm. It's been a few years since I've looked back at the, the, the details on who created the test. And that may have shifted since, uh, since I was most directly involved in the adversarial, the, the complaint process. Mm-hmm. I do think that this is a modern day example of holding up that flag saying a man was lynched. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is students are being left out, not yes. one student, but systemically, mm-hmm. and that it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's important to lift up that, hey, we're just as smart as anyone else. That's right. Right? Now, this is very personal for me because, again, I attended a, mm-hmm. a, this type of school, and I think I've, I've long throughout my life and career been treated as if I were an anomaly, mm-hmm. an exception, mm-hmm. not yes. that there are hundreds, thousands millions of others like me mm-hmm. uh, who can succeed as well and like you. You're preaching right now to me. Right. And so, and, and, and so this yes. is this is part of that dual consciousness that yeah. you talked about, yes. that code switching. Mm-hmm. And it's part of what we navigate every day in the yeah. kind of workplaces where you and I have worked, Allison, yeah. in the legal realm and government and mm-hmm. philanthropy. Mm-hmm. We've been consistently, I'm pretty sure, viewed as the exception. Oh, yes. Not the rule. That's right. Uh, Absolutely, and so and all and most most of the apparatus that we've been afforded or armed with to carry out our social justice mission mm-hmm. actually either implicitly reinforces those notions mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. inferiority, or they're not fully equipped to actually change them. They're not sufficiently yeah. paradigm shifting. Yes, I mean, Frank, the like law legal itself. precedent, like is legal not- precedent, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. I was thinking about stare decisis this morning <laughs> in the shower. Don't ask me why the president of essentially uh, inertia, as yeah. I would call it for a non-lawyer oh audience. Yeah, the, the law is designed to keep things in place. That's right. Even as it grows somehow. That's right. Um, so there are so many things I want to unpack in what you just shared. Mm-hmm. But I want to stick on that. You know, a man was lynched today. 
banner that LDF would hang out. And so some would look at your work at LDF related to the school to prison pipeline and school discipline and say, why does this testing matter? I don't understand what that is. You know, how does that even connect when that a man was lynched today banner was about bigger than that man that was lynched today? Yeah. It was about institutional racism, Mm -hmm. racial hatred, racial violence, Mm -hmm. and the origins of this country that allow for that to continue and perpetuate Mm -hmm. into Lord knows when. Yeah. Draw the connection for people between school to prison pipeline and the testing that right. we're talking about in right. this op-ed. Maybe it's hard about narrative, mm-hmm. right? Of who black people are. Yeah. Uh, and I'll stick with black people for this for this uh, part of the discussion, at least. Mm-hmm. A man was sent today's sign was part of kind of the heart of what this, the height, the core of the civil rights movement in this country mm-hmm. did, mm-hmm. which was it introduced a moral clarity. Mm and tried to tug at the heartstrings and the mind strings mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of broader America. Yeah. White America, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Uh white northern America actually in particular. Not wasn't so much directed at white southerners, That's right. I don't believe. Because the banner was hung in New York City. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Right? <laughs> right. If it was hung in somewhere else, <laughs> who knows? Yes. Uh, <laughs> what happened? So and so it's designed to introduce that moral clarity. And so one of the kind of oddities of the way Americans view history, John, the late John Payton used mm-hmm, to say, uh, mm-hmm. Americans view history backwards, mm. like in an ahistorical fashion. I've yeah. actually heard some pedagogical reasons why you should teach history that way, because uh-huh. it better connects with a younger set. But we view history that, backwards. That's we, profound. Could, first of all, tell folks who John Payton was. John Payton, when he died, he was the director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense an educational fund. Over the years in his legal practice, mostly in a private firm, the Wilmer firm, now known as Wilmer Hill in mm-hmm. D.C., brought a number of cases and defended institutions that were pushing to open access to uh, African-American and Latino students. Mm-hmm. University of Michigan and the Gratzing-Bruder cases that went mm-hmm. up to the U.S. Supreme Court, mm-hmm. uh, the Croson case even, mm-hmm. even before that. And he also argued another case uh, before the Supreme Court that was in a different realm while he was director counsel. So John was a man of supreme intellect, Mm -hmm. supreme skill, Mm -hmm. a lawyer's lawyer. A consummate social engineer. A consummate social engineer, (laughs) Mm -hmm. a historian. When John was coming on board as director of Legal Defense Fund and Ted Shaw, uh, Theodore M. Shaw, our beloved Mm -hmm. Ted, Mm -hmm. was on his way out as director counsel, I drove them around New Orleans. This Mm -hmm. is like almost immediate, kind of like within a year or so, a couple of years post-Katrina New Orleans. Yeah. Just giving them a tour of, through my eyes, of what I saw. Yeah. And in the car, John and Ted were having this deep conversation about Akil Amar's book called The Constitution, which is a book that is as thick as the (laughs) Holy Christian Bible (laughs) that I cannot say that I have read. And so John could spin a, a, a verb, he could spin a story about a constitutional idiosyncrasy, and then he bring it home and say, and that was about that riot, the Colfax massacre that happened in Louisiana. Oh my God. And, like, and, he, and he, was, he was just a captivating guy. Yeah, a storyteller. A storyteller. Mm-hmm. A story, better than me, obviously, because <laughs> I meandered, but, but he was fantastic. Speaking of which, where were we? <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about the connection between school to prison pipeline and the testing. And you were talking about John Payton and how John Payton used to say at LDF that we have to make these connections. Right, right. 
as lawyers, it's our job to make these connections. It's our job to make these connections. And so I, I think about broadening the circle of concern. And one of the oddities I was, I think I was going to say about how we perceive the civil rights movement in a historical mm-hmm, way mm-hmm. in American history, in fact, is that we view it in a very reductionist, narrow way mm-hmm. that the civil rights movement was about moral clarity, not about life, liberty, uh, happiness, freedom, justice, empathy towards black people, but it was about, well, you should be able to eat at any lunch counter yeah. you want. Right. They should be able to, to attend a school with white kids. Mm-hmm. So it's a very narrow reductionist mm-hmm. And now can't approach. you do those things? So isn't it isn't it over? <laughs> well, apparently uh, not, in part because uh, de facto segregation is at an all-time high, yeah. in, especially in, in, in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Uh, in schools. In, in schools, in right. Yeah, yes. good, thank you. In, in mm-hmm. schools. And, you know, towards the end of his, uh, his days on this earth, Dr. King would talk about how, hey, you know, if I can, you know, eat at lunch counter uh, with white people, that's great. But if I can't afford to buy a sandwich or a meal, then what does that do for it me? So there has to be a, a broader spectrum of understanding. And so when I think about um, how th- that a man was lynched today sign, what, how does that connect to the school to prison pipeline? There's a narrative about the worth and value of, of black humanity mm-hmm. in that lynching uh, banner. And mm-hmm. when it comes to school to prison pipeline, as you know better than most, Allison, in this country, as you're a national expert yourself, there is a, a devaluing of the humanity of black children, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whether it be suspensions, expulsions, arrests in school, mm-hmm. whether it be educational neglect, yes, whether it be being irrationally perceived as threats mm-hmm. by people who are imbued with the authority to take someone's life, right, sanctioned by law. Mm-hmm. There is a devaluing and debasing of the humanity of even children, mm-hmm. black children, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just like Emmett Till. Yeah, just like Emmett Till. And Trayvon Martin. And Trayvon. Right. And Jordan Davis. That's right. Yeah. And, and, the, and the young sisters who have been killed as well. Yes, so, so, so I think there is a, a Sandra Bland, mm-hmm. although it's that we, don't, we don't have the same de- degree of evidence in Sandra's case, but I think mm-hmm. she's part of that spectrum. Yeah. And then when I think about this uh, test-only admissions policy in the New York City schools, Assumptions about intellectual inferiority, even if implicit, mm-hmm. are also a big driver mm-hmm. of this whole broader phenomena of devaluing black humanity mm-hmm. or not recognizing black humanity. Yeah. And so t- to me, it's, it's, it's all connected. I attended, I mentioned earlier, LSU, Louisiana State University and, and Penn Law School, but even my high school. These were majority white institutions. Mm-hmm. And I had to decide early on how would I find my way? Mm-hmm. Would I shrink? Would I disappear? Would mm-hmm. I quote-unquote, act out, the little kid decides to act yes. out. It's just kind of a phenomenon. You yeah. react to what's... what's which, what's which in many cases, is racial memory. That's true, racial know? memory. That's they, right. And not having the the words to articulate right. that a man was lynched today. That's you right, know? that's right. In my that's memory. Right. That's right. I wasn't there physically, but uh-huh. I, I remember that. The collective, that's right. Yeah. Memory, that's right. Mm-hmm. What I decided to do in those institutions was claim my stake, claim mm-hmm. my share, mm-hmm. to be outspoken to mm-hmm. be vocal mm-hmm. and not necessarily always an adversarial way but just like matter of fact like i'm here mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know like and we're here and so take and, me it's a take me or we, not or not and we, but we, i am here but i'm here right yeah. and i won't be ignored i won't be dismissed yeah uh whether that means you know challenging a, a professor appropriately on a historical mm-hmm. fact or mm-hmm. a cultural point i had a law professor my first year of law school who corrected my grammar in class and I proceeded to do two things. Mm-hmm. I listened to what other students said throughout the rest of the class, mm-hmm. white students mainly, 
who used all forms of improper mm-hmm. grammar mm-hmm. with a different cadence than and mine. And weren't corrected. And were not corrected. And then I also thought about what I said and what he tried to correct me on. The professor was trying to reschedule uh, the next class session because mm-hmm. he had a professional obligation. And he said, does anyone have a conflict for such and such day? And I said, uh, Susan and I have a conflict. My colleague, uh, Susan, because we had a meeting with the dean to get more money for loan assistance. <laughs> he said, I have one thing to say about that. He said, Susan and me. No, I thought to myself, that's actually I said, wrong. He's no, wrong. me don't have a conflict. Me don't have a <laughs> I conflict. Have a, I have a conflict. And so anyway, I proceeded to, yeah. uh, before the next class session, mm-hmm. I went to his office mm-hmm. hours. And I said, hey, you know, I just want to tell you, I noticed that you corrected my grammar. I didn't appreciate it. And I also believe you were incorrect. Mm-hmm. But furthermore, there were other students who used incorrect grammar and you did not correct them. Mm-hmm. And then I gave him an article about why that's bad pedagogy for a lower grade, for grade school students. You gave him, ev- it was I gave an evidence-based right. argument. That's right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he, you know, said, is this racial? You're saying this is racial? And I said, no, I didn't say that. You said, you said it. That. And then he proceeded throughout the rest of, throughout the class that started a few minutes later to kind of like sigh periodically and look in my direction. And he said, I'm sorry, class. One of your classmates says something that has me completely discombobulated. He was immature. He was immature. <laughs> it was interesting about him is he was a classic liberal uh-huh. who worked in, I want to say, either in or alongside lawyers in the Carter administration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you questioned his loyalty. And I, I questioned his loyalty, essentially. To social right? justice. And so my point is that I was no hero, no champion. In fact, I was scared, mm-hmm. frankly, to do it because I was afraid of what would happen. But, um, you know, good colleagues and friends gave me the courage to say something, mm-hmm. help me with that. And uh, I'm glad I did. Yeah. And that was part of me claiming space in the institution and not just simply allowing him. And it wasn't a complaint to the dean. It wasn't a lawsuit about a racially hostile environment, mm-hmm. although it could be that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. But it was me declaring my humanity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this guy, mm-hmm. probably to make up for it, he, you know, proceeded to write recommendations for me for federal clerkships and this, that and the other. <laughs> he was then solidly right. your ally. And so and so essentially. Yeah. And so, if, I mean, I, you're, I'm, I'm probably talking more than you want me to talk. But one of the things I thought about that experience was I started thinking about not that the onus is on us as black people to to lead the way on everything, but that we do have agency in our, embracing our own humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that part of being us is a, the privilege slash burden of doing the kind of things that, that we did. Yeah. Of attending a rally. Yes. Of having a conversation. Not that we have to uh, explain everything to every colleague every time, <laughs> right. but sometimes we have to hold space just to keep ourselves whole. Yes. And I think that really connects well to your work with the Executives Alliance, mm. which much of it is focused on narrative. It's focused on perception. It's focused on the ways in which people encounter and experience and consider Mm-hmm. boys and young men of color. Right. What is the Executives Alliance and what is your work there? The Executives Alliance for Boys and Men of Color is a philanthropic network. Mm-hmm. It's comprised of a set of foundation presidents and by extension their staff, mm-hmm. some of them very large, some of them small, uh, all of whom have varying degrees of investments or leadership activities focusing on various populations of boys and men of color. Mm-hmm. Most do tend to focus on African-American men and boys, some mm-hmm. Latino men and boys, mm-hmm. some Native men and boys, mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, a very small minority uh, API uh, men and boys. Asian Pacific Islander. Asian Pacific Islander, mm-hmm. thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, certain subpopulations within the API community because yeah. it's hard to address that community kind of with as a one. broad stroke as yes. one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 
these foundations has have essentially been on a learning mission driven primarily by bold and innovative program officers, uh, African-Americans and other people of color mm-hmm. who understood that simply a transactional moving money is mm-hmm. insufficient mm-hmm. to make lasting impact because all grants have cycles. Yes. And most foundations have max grant cycles of about three years. Yes. If that. If you're lucky. If you're lucky, at least <laughs> once a year yeah. or annual, mm-hmm. uh, renewable, sometimes not renewable. Mm-hmm. But that we actually have to start to change the practices and behaviors within the philanthropic sector. Mm-hmm. And part of that is getting people with uh, greater access and proximity to power mm-hmm. uh, to themselves be more proximate to these communities and, and these issues. And so in our case, that means foundation presidents and CEOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, although sometimes I think we need to get to the board and trustees as well. Yeah. Uh, but the staff that I manage, we endeavor to uh, enhance the coordination and impact of philanthropic investments focused on these populations of, of, of men and boys. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, the key strategic principles in our work, in addition to elevating the the voice and leadership of young men of color mm-hmm. as agents and architects of their own liberation, yeah. is also to shift and change the false and damaging narratives about boys and men of color. Yeah. And even uh, as we've been thinking lately, inspired by Kathy Cohen, who started Black Youth Project, not BYP 100, but Black mm-hmm. Youth Project itself, mm-hmm. she talks about expansion of narrative, not mm-hmm. just changing and replacing. Uh, let's think about popular culture, mm-hmm. depictions of Black men, Black women, sidekick, mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call it stereotype. I like to call it, my own Damon language, monotype. Like, yes. all you can do be is this one type That's right. of person. There's no the character comedian, development. The athlete. That's right. The entertainer. That's right. Yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I don't watch Empire. Yeah. <laughs> I've never watched an episode of a show. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm holier than now, but yeah, yeah. there's certain things I just don't do and have mm-hmm. a stomach for. But mm-hmm. uh, I watch other bad stuff on TV. <laughs> But at any Queen rate, Sugar is very good, just for the record. I, I've seen the episode or two of that with my <laughs> wife. But at any rate, uh, the entire notion that uh, we can't be fully developed mm-hmm. <laughs> people, mm-hmm. characters, yes. human beings is yeah. kind of part of what narrative expansion is all about. Now, we've struggled, I have to acknowledge, to operationalize the notion of narrative change, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in part because we're so darn tied to the deficit-based narratives. Yeah. And in fact, you know, one of the big strategic challenges we have in this executive's alliance is not just with foundations. Mm-hmm. It's also with the broader field of organizations focused on boys and of color or mm-hmm. the government-tinged initiatives like mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the My Brother's Keeper work that's popped up. Mm-hmm. The tent has grown so big and so wide, yeah. there are now people under that tent who actually don't share the same values, let alone the same strategies. Mm-hmm. And with the best of intentions, some people are actually... Uh, reinforcing deficit-based narratives yeah. about boys and men of color. Yeah. So there is a tug of war underway. How do we stop them from being criminals? Exactly. How do we stop them from being criminals? Yeah. How do how do how we... do we help them if they can't if they can't perform in schools? What can we do to make that better for That's them? That's right. Yeah. What kind of test prep can we do? <laughs> yes. kind of tutoring. Exactly. How do we mentor our way out of being shot by the police? Yes. Uh, let, me, not... let me give you the ten points on what you need to do when you encounter police because you, clearly you're behaving wrong. When police come across you. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And mm-hmm. so those are the kind of things that we challenge. Now, truth is, we have to have some degree of balance because we're a very diverse philanthropic yeah. Yeah. Uh, networking community. And so I don't by any means wish to denigrate the importance of power of like a mentor in a mm-hmm. young man's life mm-hmm. because I have been a mentor, sometimes failed at it, mm-hmm. informally not signing up to be a mentor usually, but mm-hmm. and I have been mentored 
And sometimes my mentors have <laughs> failed me. Sometimes succeeded radically. And sometimes you find unlikely mentors and mentees. And mm-hmm. so these human experiences and connections matter a whole lot. Yeah. But they also are not the only spoke on the wheel of change and transformation. Mm. Uh, there has to be some other spoke. Yeah. And that's changing. That is systemic. Change, exactly. Yeah. Systemic. Changing the, the policy environment, the systemic environment, sometimes the cultural environment in which we, our young men and, and also young women, have to navigate mm-hmm. every day. If you don't change those things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then no amount of test prep or bootstrap lessons mm-hmm. are going to make any kind of difference in the world. This is the work, right? The narrative work, the mindset shift, that is mm-hmm. the work. It's at the core of everything, education justice, housing justice, mm-hmm. all of it is about mm-hmm. mindset shifts. And, and it's about what you've said here, which is this deficit mindset that we have Mm -hmm. that the nation has when it comes to people of color and black and brown in particular and you know i um my son is 14 years old Mm -hmm. he's you know he's six foot two he's tall Mm -hmm. and very very fun he's beautiful smart very smart uh, objectively speaking (laughs) (laughs) he's all of those things objectively he's got his dreadlocks and he's very you know he can be very playful and fun but he can also be just about his business just focused right Mm -hmm. and so He's old enough that we've essentially turned him loose in the city, which Mm -hmm. is um, terrifying for me, honestly, as his mother. It is terrifying. And so every now and then when I'm with him, I will just kind of stand back and let him walk ahead of me so that people don't know necessarily that we are connected, just so I can watch how the world receives him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was watching him just this past weekend walk down the street. He had on his, he loves his Black Panther t-shirt that we got from the Dream Defenders in Miami, Florida. You know, and he's he's proudly walking walking down the street, you know, bopping along like nothing's wrong. And I just was watching the white folks experience him as he is, but also with this shirt on and the terror, the fear on their faces and anger in some instances. There was one woman who was sitting smoking her cigarette and she saw him and she was looking at his T-shirt and she just frowned at him. And then she immediately saw me and she was shaking her head and I could tell she wanted to say something to mm. me. And I just I just kept going because my daughter was with me as well. So I kept going. I did not engage her. But that's what he's immersed in. That is his mm-hmm. world. And this is a bubble, D.C. Right. So just in your experience with all that you've mm-hmm. done in your career and, and the realities and what you are working really to fix, which is the problem, the mindset shift. What is the solution or are the solutions that philanthropy can really be working on to really just change that that soup that our, our young men and boys and women and girls are walking through every single day? That's profound what you what you just shared about your son. That's mm-hmm. profound. Um, philanthropy, um, you know, often has a big clumsy footprint mm-hmm. in most of what it tries to do. And so I think that's kind of my starting place of how do you like you know, try not to do too much mm-hmm. and think you saved the day and within three to five years move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I do break down what philanthropy can do into external and internal. Mm-hmm. Uh, externally, uh, I do think supporting the right types of endeavors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that adhere to or follow or subscribe to some of the tenets of what we've discussed. If we could boil it down and there's been, I won't belabor it now, but there's been efforts to do that, mm-hmm. including in the Alliance, mm-hmm. to identify what are some of the basic tenets of of narrative change, of truth-telling, of yeah. asset-based approaches. And so I think that funding initiatives that subscribe to those tenets are, mm-hmm. I think, pretty pretty important. And also, frankly, I won't even say defunding, but just at least challenging those that don't. Mm-hmm. 
right, to create a consciousness in the field of what's necessary, what's needed, and what's frankly destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the funding piece is important. There's also the in, another, another part of the external, it's kind of internal slash external, is not just speaking with money. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it's easy for big foundations, easier rather, to write a check mm-hmm. or a wire transfer and then be hands off and mm-hmm. not be proximate. Yeah. So I do think vocal leadership mm-hmm. and also greater proximity to... In parallel and aligned with communities. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. In parallel and aligned. And so, Mm -hmm. so for one one example, what we've tried uh, to do is in the realm of fair chance hiring, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not the end all be all for black and brown people, but it's a pretty significant Mm -hmm. uh, piece given how many of us uh, have been uh, uh, locked up, incarcerated, arrested, or have have, have records. Uh, And so, fair chance hiring essentially is connected to the effort to uh, so called ban the box, right? Mm -hmm. To try to make it easier for people who have arrested conviction histories to get a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we started uh, what we call the Ban the Box Philanthropy Challenge, mm-hmm. uh, which in which about 50 foundations have agreed to uh, either previously or, or just agreed to join our cause, uh, adopt fair chance hiring policies, mm-hmm. which essentially mean not asking about arrested conviction histories mm-hmm. and actually getting to know the person before you even do any kind of background check, if ever, mm-hmm. and only do it if it's relevant and make sure that it's very limited and circumscribed. Now, this all came about in part because many strong advocacy organizations were lobbying the Obama administration to adopt fair chance hiring practices for the federal government and for federal contractors. Mm-hmm. And so uh, some of them came to us and asked, will foundation presidents sign on? Mm-hmm. What we did instead was we got foundation presidents to write their own letter mm-hmm. directly to President Obama, mm-hmm. urging the exact same thing that the advocacy community, community. grassroots and inside yeah. the Beltway policy groups were demanding and asking for. Yeah. And so in that respect, Allison, we were walking with yeah. those organizations. Mm-hmm. And we also did it in another way. We didn't start out doing this, but... After we were challenged appropriately so mm-hmm. by good people, we started to directly engage and include people who were directly impacted, mm-hmm. uh, people who had arrested conviction histories, but were now advocates, uh, one was a lawyer, mm-hmm. to actually help us understand uh, how we should be doing this work, how we go about this work, and started to change some of the internal mindsets mm-hmm. amongst those in philanthropy. We brought together a cadre of, of human resources professionals and put them in dialogue with people who had arrested conviction mm-hmm. histories. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting to yeah. see, the, the, yeah. the tensions, but also the sweet spots of agreement mm-hmm. uh, were, I think, really interesting to see. And so at any rate, that's one of the things that we tried to do, essentially not, and that didn't cost us a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. We we had we engaged people as consultants, and including formerly incarcerated people, but it wasn't the money, it was the leadership, and it was the vocal, the vocal stance of yeah. those foundation leaders that made a difference. Another part of the internal is really just aligning what funders say mm-hmm. and what they, how they operate mm-hmm. and what they fund. Yeah. I mean, they say that uh, philanthropy, if you follow the money, that tells you what the values are. Mm-hmm. That's true. But I also think it's more than that mm-hmm. because you can episodically fund the right things, yeah. but whether you, there's a consistency of message, voice, leadership. So for example, uh, a lot of funders these days are talking about racial equity. It's kind of yeah. in vogue. Yeah. Almost now a baseline competency That's to be right. a philanthropic professional, which is a good thing. Yeah. In, if it's, in certain philanthropic circles. In certain, That's right. In certain <laughs> philanthropic circles. Yeah. And some talk about it, but don't really yes. do it, which is yeah. unfortunate. And then and, others who don't even talk about it. That's right. Still. But there's an, right, so there's an emerging uh, understanding, however, that even amongst those foundations mm-hmm. that have a discourse about racial equity, and even operationalize it in their grant making, Mm -hmm. don't operationalize it in their evaluation practices. That's right. So you're evaluating the grantees who receive racial equity 
of portfolio grants in ways <laughs> that actually undermine the core purpose. That's so right. it's really the alignment of operations. And the bigger the foundation, frankly, the harder it is to do because mm-hmm. they're little fiefdoms. Mm-hmm. There are lots of VPs and, and what have you. And again, well-intentioned people, mm-hmm. but uh, that is it. You know, I, the co-chair of the board of the Executives Alliance told me one time that leadership is managing tension. Mm. And I think that's true internally within an individual philanthropic institution, mm-hmm. but I also certainly find that true across philanthropic institutions. Mm-hmm. And so what we're really doing, Allison, is trying to not get everybody to do a transactional thing and fund the same thing or fund similar things. There's certainly some of that yeah, because uh, they need to see that to yeah. make, make them feel like money is moving, which is our core business. Yeah. We do what we do. You can't have a legacy effect with even, you know, millions of dollars, I don't mm-hmm, believe. Mm-hmm. I think you can have a legacy effect by changing not just what funders do, but how they think, mm-hmm. how they think mm-hmm. and perceive black men and boys, Latino men and boys, mm-hmm. for example, what they think about the field and the organizations and what they think are the, the, the long-term outcomes. Mm-hmm. Finally, one other example that I think bridges internal and external, a group of young men came to us a little over a year ago and essentially demanded that we change how we operate, mm. uh, both in, in funding and also in engagement. Mm-hmm. And they said to us, how can you have an executives alliance for boys and men of color, but there's no, at least young men of color, that are informing your strategy? Yeah. And are you not really funding us in the ways that you should? Mm-hmm. That's always the constant refrain, certainly in philanthropy. They demanded, essentially, requested, demanded uh, $4.5 million. Mm. And so we're two-thirds of the way there. Mm-hmm. Our network has helped them achieve those funds. And the money is not just to have money just to plug budget holes. It's actually designed to do two important things. One, mm. primarily to regrant to youth-led campaigns throughout the country mm-hmm. under a justice reinvestment framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is to position a cadre of young men to have an ongoing relationship with our executives aligned staff and foundation presidents to essentially be strategy partners, not mm-hmm. strategic partners to say you not look good, strategically I look good place, right. but, but strategy partners. Yeah. The idea is that can they meaningfully inform philanthropic strategy? Yeah. Can we heed their voice, as I said earlier, as the architects of their own liberation? Mm-hmm. That is a grand aim. Mm-hmm. But to me, if we can move the needle on that, in ways that are sometimes difficult to measure, mm-hmm. uh, although they're points of bright spots, right? Mm-hmm. I think that has more lasting legacy impact than three, four, five, ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the money does matter. My last question for you is: What is your why? My colleague mm-hmm. Alexa Smith talks all the time about her why and working for her why and with her why, and often it's her her daughters or some higher purpose. What is your why, Damon? Yeah. My why is deeply personal and it's also cultural. It's about how I feel about myself and people like me. Uh, It's about how I feel that I and we are deserving and worthy of opportunity, Mm -hmm. worthy of empathy, Mm -hmm. worthy of protection, Mm -hmm. worthy of support and justice, Mm -hmm. uh, worthy of nurturing. Everything around us tells us we're not. And so I think that whether it's legal practice, whether it's courtroom, classroom, boardroom, black tie or barbecue, it's all a political project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of it. Mm-hmm. And it's about claiming that stake, not just for myself, but for, for our people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And finding a lot of good allies along the way. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Danny Hewitt. Thank you. Thank you Brown. for your work. <laughs>
Thank you for all that you do every single day and for being on Schoolhouse today. Uh, Damon Hewitt is the director of the Executive Alliance for Boys and Men of Color, and he is a senior advisor at the Open Society Foundation. Damon, if folks want to find you online through social media, what's the best way for them to do that? You can connect to Executive Alliance at at Execs Alliance on Twitter, and you can find me at Damon T. Hewitt, H-E-W-I-T-T, on Twitter. Thank you again, and remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and find the Communities for Just Schools Fund at cjsfund.org. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.